Chapter 14 of The Boy Scouts on Lost Trail by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 14 The Hidden Camp. When Spud recovered consciousness, he lay for a few seconds idly wondering where he was and what was the matter. He was still dazed. Vaguely, like a shadowy dream, a vision of a terrible monster, mostly teeth and claws, floated through his mind and unconsciously he moved ever so little. Instantly an ugly snarl sounded so close at hand that involuntarily he drew away from it, and in that instant his brain cleared. His first thought was surprise they did not feel the teeth or claws of the beast he was sure had knocked him down. His next was to get away from that immediate neighborhood as quickly as he could. He scrambled to his feet a bit unsteadily and plunged across to the edge of the birch thicket, expecting with every frightened jump to be attacked from the rear. But nothing happened, and by the time he had reached the thicket, he had begun to recover his nerve in some measure and to think with some degree of clearness. There he paused to reconnoiter and get a mental grasp on himself and the situation. His head ached a bit from the bump which had put him out of business, but it was nothing serious. He had no means of knowing how long he had been unconscious, but he suspected that it was only for a minute or two. Barring a sore head, he was all right. There was not even a scratch to show for his adventure. He could see his hat close to the upturned roots of the fallen tree, and protruding from a tangle of brush at one side was the barrel of his rifle. He scowled at it in perplexity. To go back and get it might be to invite another attack, but that snarl had been at no great distance from where the rifle now lay. In fact, it had seemed almost in his very ear as he lay there. A pretty mess I've gotten myself into, he grumbled. If I go back to camp without my hat and rifle and never hear the end of it, why in the deuce didn't the critter finish me when he had me down? Must be some reason. I've always heard that a bobcat won't attack unless cornered, and that they're nothing but big sneaking cowards anyway. I hadn't cornered that critter, so what made it jump at me like that? And why didn't it sneak away when it had the chance? I believe the blamed beast is still in that windfall. He picked up a small stick and threw it so that it rattled against the roots of the fallen tree. The response was prompt and to the point. There was a vicious snarl. Needless to say, it added nothing to Spud's peace of mind, nor did it aid him in thinking of a solution of his predicament. That rifle he must have. He had fully made up his mind to this. But to try and get it unarmed would be the rankest kind of folly cold shiver ran down his spine at the mere thought of facing that thing which had sprung at him from the windfall. Instinctively he looked around for a weapon, but there was nothing but rotten sticks available. Then, for the first time, he remembered his scout knife. It was a work of but a few minutes to select a straight young sapling about two inches through, and cut from this a three-foot club. With this in his hand, Sput felt his courage return. Removing his poncho, he wrapped it around his left arm as a protection in case of attack, and smiled grimly as, with the club in his right hand, he prepared to advance. His sense of humor, always keen, cropped out now. "'Regular little wild animal trainer,' he murmured half audibly. "'Anyhow, I've always read that this is the approved method of meeting a wild beast at close quarters. Let them chew your protected arm while you beat out their brains with a club.' Sounds good, but, well, here's a chance to try it. Let me see. Seems to me I've heard that all the critters are afraid of the human voice. Guess I'll throw a few scares into this one before I go any nearer. 
Hereupon he yelled fiercely, advanced a few steps, and yelled again. But if the animal was intimidated by Spud's display of verbal fierceness, it made no sign. Somehow the silence seemed ominous. Spud paused irresolutely. If I knew just exactly where the critter is, I'd feel better. I believe I'll see if I can get a rise out of him from another direction. Putting the thought into action, he made a detour and slowly approached the windfall from the upper end of the fallen tree. There he paused uncertainly. There was no sign or sound. Again he tried the effect of a yell, but as he later expressed it, there was nothing doing. With his club he wrapped the trunk of the tree sharply. This time he drew a response, a sharp spitting ending in a snarl. It came from a point seemingly under the windfall at the other end of the tree, just beyond the upturned roots. Same old place. I guess I've got you located now, said Spud. Wonder if I can drive you out. He gathered some sticks, and with these bombarded the place where the animal was hidden. The only result was to produce a volley of spits, snarls, and growls. Found a stick, huh? Well, I hope you'll keep the same mind while I get that rifle. Spud's courage was growing in proportion as he realized the animal's disinclination to show himself. Retracing his steps, he once more approached the rifle from the direction of the birch thicket, advancing a step and then pausing, his club gripped ready for instant use. An occasional low growl was the only evidence that the hidden animal was aware of his approach. At last he reached a point where the rifle was almost within reach. The mass of roots prevented him from seeing what was going on under the windfall, and at the same time protected him from direct attack from that direction. Holding his breath, and with pounding heart, he leaned forward and grabbed the muzzle of a gun. Drawing it to him with a sharp movement, he instantly threw it to his shoulder, cocking it as he did so. An uneasy stir in the windfall and a spitting snarl, a shade more spiteful than before, were the only results. Hastily backing away, Spud drew a long breath of relief. With a rifle in his hands, he felt immeasurable relief. To be sure, it was only a twenty-two, but it was of high power, and the very fact that he had any kind of gun was ground for a return of confidence. If I can work around there to the right, where I can see clear of those confounded roots, maybe I can get a glimpse of the brute and see what he looks like, he thought and with rifle ready and finger on the trigger cautiously worked over to the desired position. As the windfall came fully into view, he stared into the tangle eagerly. At first he saw nothing to indicate that a living animal was hiding there. Presently, however, he became aware of two points of light in an opening under the thickest part of the pile of brush, and then gradually a fierce, gray-whiskered face, out of which two savage greenish-yellow eyes glared unwinkingly, took form. Involuntarily, he drew back a step or two. A lynx, he gasped. A Canada lynx! Spud was a bit nonplussed. If he had had Pat's rifle, he would not have hesitated in an instant. But the little twenty-two was never intended for game of this size. Common sense told him to leave well enough alone and beat a retreat while the going was good. But what a feather in his cap it would be if he could lug such a prize as this back to camp. A foolhardy impulse to risk a shot took possession of him. Slowly he lifted the rifle, and as slowly lowered it again. Should he? Meanwhile the two spots of light glared at him balefully. If I can put a shot through one of those eyes, perhaps it will reach the brain. I guess that's my only chance, he thought. 
Once more he raised the rifle and endeavored to draw a bead on one of those glowing coals. Just as he pulled the trigger, they disappeared. The animal had moved, and Spud heard the bullet strike the brush. Hastily throwing another cartridge into place from the magazine, he awaited a half-expected rush. But beyond the slight movement and another outburst of spitting and snarling, nothing happened. A moment later he made out the grim, whiskered visage, peering at him again a trifle to the right of its former position. He now advanced slowly and cautiously, with his rifle covering the animal, until he was within five yards. The only effect was to cause the lynx to withdraw ever so little. If I can't pot him at this distance, I deserve to get chewed up, he thought, and once more and with all the care of which he was capable brought his sights to bear on one of the unwavering eyes. This time at the sharp crack of the rifle there was a half-smothered screech, a lurch forward which brought the animal half out from its hiding place, and then, after a few spasmodic kicks, the big creature lay still. The shot had gone true. Spud had hastily backed away at the first movement, and now, at a safe distance, anxiously watched for some sign of life. But there was none, and after a little he ventured nearer. A sudden sense of elation overwhelmed him, but his fright was too recent for him to forget caution. He threw a stick at the inert body, then, cutting a long pole, he poked it gently, then vigorously. At last, convinced that the animal was dead, he approached and attempted to drag the body out, but he could not budge it. Something held it fast. Wonderingly, he peered into the mass of brush, and in an instant understood the seemingly inexplicable behavior of the animal and so the meaning of the broad trail from the birch thicket. The lynx was held fast by one hind leg in the grip of a trap, and this in turn was fastened to a heavy clog. It was the dragging of the ladder which had torn up the ground, and it was the weight of it which had cut short the spring of the animal when he had launched himself at Spud. Later, when the animal had sought shelter under the windfall, the chain had become caught among the branches, and this accounted for the animal's refusal to either retreat or come forth. Freeing the trap, Spud dragged his prize out where he could see it to better advantage. The lynx was a big fellow, scarcely less savage-looking in death than in life and as Spud looked at the cruel teeth framed in a setting of long gray hair, at the tufted ears and the great paws armed with wicked-looking claws, it was clear that he had brought to an inglorious end of life of many years in the evil ways of the stealthiest prowler of the wilderness, and he shuddered at the thought of what might have happened but for the hampering clog. An examination of the trap started his thoughts along the old line, first awakened by the discovery of the rabbit snares, Whoever had set those snares had set this trap. He didn't question this at all, and whoever it was, the trapper was somewhere in that vicinity. Had it been later in the season, the finding of the trap would have meant nothing, so far as the camp of the trapper was concerned, for a trap line is usually many miles in length, but finding it in connection with the snares was significant. It meant that there was a hidden camp not far away. Of this Spud was by now thoroughly convinced, he scowled down at the prize stretched out at his feet and tried to decide what he should do. Should he go back to camp and lay his suspicions, which amounted to conviction, together with the evidence to support them, before the others, or should he try and locate the trapper and then report, I'm up here and I may as well have a look around. It won't do any harm and I may discover something more, he thought. Wonder what I'd better do with this fellow. 
and right then another thought came to him that for the time being put everything else out of his head. Had he the right to the big gray beast lying at his feet? It was the problem of the rabbit and the snare over again, but with a difference. There was no illegality in the trapping of the lynx. Spud sat down on the trunk of the big hemlock with his chin in his hands, his elbows on his knees, gazed moodily at the big cat while he fought a bitter battle with himself. I shot him. I shot him. Of course he's mine, he repeated fiercely to himself over and over again. Who's got a better right to him? The trapper, was a prompt reply of the still, small voice within. It's the law of the woods and justice, and whatever is caught in the trap is the property of the one who set the trap. The lynx doesn't belong to you, and you know it. But the fellow, whoever he is, is an outlaw. Anyway, he's a lawbreaker. And the proof of it is the rabbit hanging back there in that snare, and also those other snares, argued the tempter. Two wrongs never yet made a right, and no matter what he's done, this is that other chap's property, and you can't get around it, persisted the better self. What's the odds? He'll never know who took it. And if he did find out, you've got the goods on him with those snares, and he wouldn't dare open his head. He owes it to you for the fright you got and that bump on the head. Besides, you don't know that he's around here anyway. He may have left. Probably has. And that poor brute would have starved to death and done no one any good. A scout's honor is to be trusted. It seemed as if the very words fairly leaped out at him. The very first rule of the scout law. A scout's honor is to be trusted. Instantly Spud's face cleared. You bet it is, he said emphatically, speaking aloud. You bet it is, and I'm a scout. Right and wrong, honor and law are the same in the wilderness as anywhere else. And it's a darn poor scout who can't be trusted, wherever he is. That critter isn't mine. The thing for me to do is to leave it right here and to try to find the fellow it does belong to. Perhaps he'll sell it to me. I want that skin about as badly as ever I wanted anything in my life, and I'm going to have it if I can get it on the square. If I can't, all right. I'll be able to look myself straight in the face the next time I see a looking-glass, anyhow. Spud now had a new incentive to hunt for the hidden camp he felt sure was somewhere near, and he set about the task with renewed energy and determination. Leaving the lynx where he lay, he picked up his rifle and slowly began to work around the outer edge of the birch thicket, studying the ground and trees with the utmost care. He reasoned that the snares were set in order to get a supply of meat in the easiest way, and so, of course, they would not be far from the camp of the man who set them. That meant that the camp was probably within a radius of a half mile. In fact, the contour of the land was such that any other possibility was unreasonable. This was the head of the hollow, and the mountains hemmed it in closely on all sides. No man in his senses would pitch his camp on the steep slopes rising on all sides, and therefore it must be in the hollow itself. Probably there's a little drawback to the hills here somewhere, like the one where the beavers are at work, reasoned Spud. That would account for our not seeing any smoke from camp. If I stick to the edge of this thicket, I'm bound to find signs somewhere of where that chap goes in and out. If I can just get the direction, a little good scouting ought to locate him. Presently he became aware that the thicket gradually made back toward the hills, and then abruptly ended. At this point he came to a dry gully, evidently the bed of a mountain brook in the season of freshets. 
In the bottom of this, he soon found evidence that someone had passed that way more than once, recently disturbed pebbles, bent twigs, and in one or two damp places what appeared to be the impress of a foot. "'I've caught him now,' he exulted, and pushed ahead up the gully, walking rapidly but cautiously. Gradually the gully widened and presently opened into a tiny circular hollow from all sides on which the hills rose sharply. Spud paused to study the scene. A heavy stand of hemlock clothed the hills to the very bottom of the steep slopes, while the hollow itself was a mixed stand of birch, maple, and a few young hemlocks. To the right and on the far side appeared a suspicious opening among the trees and brush. Slowly, and with the utmost caution, Spud worked his way around to get a view of this. The blood pounded through his veins with excitement. This was real stalking. On hands and knees he crawled into the shelter of a young hemlock from behind which he felt sure that he would be able to see the whole of what he was convinced was a tiny clearing. Nor was he disappointed. There before him was the hidden camp. To be sure it was not much of a camp. A hunter's lean-to, thatched with hemlock, a fireplace in front, a black pail on its side close by, a rusty-looking frying-pan on the end of a log, but it was a camp, and undoubtedly the one for which he was searching. Bits of rabbit skin and feathers of grouse littered the ground near the fireplace, and hanging from a corner of the lean-to was a deer-skin. At first glance the camp appeared deserted, but presently it seemed to Spud that he could make out a form in the interior of the lean-to. He strained his eyes, and after a little was sure that he detected a slight movement. Probably asleep, he thought. I believe I'll work around back and get a closer view. This was not a difficult matter, for there was plenty of cover, and the boy was soon where he could see clearly. On a torn blanket spread on a bed of brows lay a man. He was roughly dressed and unkempt, and his face was turned away so that it was impossible to judge of his age. A rifle stood against one end of the lean-to, and a battered hat lay on the ground. There was little else to be seen. Altogether it was as desolate a scene as could well be imagined. The sleeper tossed uneasily, and Spud caught the sound of his voice. "'Must be having bad dreams. Guess I'll take a chance of waking him up and see if I can't make a dicker with him for that lynx.' he thought, and stepped out into the open and boldly approached the lean-to. The sleeper took no heed but continued to mutter. Once he cried out sharply. "'Hello there!' shouted Spud. Instantly the man half-raised and turned a terror-stricken face to him. A pair of wild eyes stared out from a hollow face covered with a beard of several weeks' growth. "'Don't touch me!' he shrieked. "'I tell you, I didn't do it! I, I didn't! I didn't!' He sank back weakly, and his voice trailed off into an unintelligible mutter. Oni, gasped the startled Spud. "'Must be he's sick and out of his head.' A wave of pity swept over him, and he hurried forward. As he did so, his foot hit something. Mechanically, he glanced down to see what it was. A moccasin lay upturned, and across the sole was a patch. End of chapter 14